0: Amen. Thank you, worship team. If we've got any little ones left in here, you can head out. Bless you as you head downstairs. And uh, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it this morning to Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 15, Matthew 6, 7 to 15. Uh, If you were here last week, you may recall that uh, last week we looked at this section as a whole, from verse 1 all the way through to verse 18. Uh, And we notice that there's a common theme there for the section, and that is the theme of religious hypocrisy. But then inside, and by the way, that's important to notice, Uh, the the outer frame in, in, in this instance really does shape our interpretation of the section in the middle that we're going to be talking about today. Because inside this larger section on religious hypocrisy, there is a model prayer that we all know and appreciate as the Lord's Prayer. And so this morning, just because that's such an important passage and one that is so beloved to us all, we're going to drill down on that and take a look at it. I doubt that there is a passage that is uh, more well-known, more beloved, uh, more commonly memorized in Canada. I was thinking maybe Psalm 23. Quick show of hands. This isn't meant to embarrass. This is more just me doing research. Uh, Quick show of hands if you have Psalm 23 memorized in any translation. Yeah, so I don't know. What would that be? 60% of us? All right. Quick, show of hands if you have the Lord's Prayer memorized. So it's even higher. Like, I, I don't. I don't imagine we. Maybe John 3:16. Put up your hand if you have John 3:16 memorized. Okay. All right. So maybe certainly the of, of verses more than one verse in length. Uh, the Lord's Prayer would be the most commonly memorized passage of Scripture. Probably, maybe in all the world. Certainly in Canada. If you're my age or older. First of all, you know, God bless you. Um, but if you're my age or older then you, remember, we used to say the Lord's Prayer every morning in public school after singing O Canada. Do you remember that? Yeah. And uh, it's interesting to try to figure out how, like, what was the age when that stopped? I don't remember. Uh, I remember that it did stop. But anyway, if you're, say, under 30, I'm guessing you did not. Look, but for those my age and older, we said the Lord's Prayer every day in school. And then if you went to um, beavers and cubs or uh, brownies and girl guides, as, as I did, obviously not brownies and girl guides, but you know what I'm saying, <laughs> beavers and cubs, then, then you said it again in the evening. So, uh, so again, this is, I, I would argue beyond a shadow of a doubt, the most memorized, the most well-known passage in Canada, because this is actually a select group. We're, we're churchgoers, right, by and large, I would assume. If you're at church, then you are a churchgoer, I suppose, by definition, um, For regular Canadians who are maybe not churchgoers, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if they're my age and older than the Lord's Prayer, might be the only passage of Scripture that they know. So what a privilege it is. I mean, the the danger in a privilege, danger in that you know it so well you might think, oh boy, I can have a snooze and and, uh, I don't need to listen because I know this so well. So dangerous, but privilege too because this is, as I said, arguably the most beloved passage in all the Bible. So let's uh, drill down today. Let's enjoy the privilege of mining the depths of this fabulous passage. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you're like me, it's actually hard to read that and not to slip into the liturgical version of the prayer that we all memorized in school, isn't it? How many of you wanted to add the ending there? For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Right. So that's a liturgical version of the prayer, and that's perfectly fine. Jesus meant this to be a teaching tool. And uh, we all know the version in Canada from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer where they add that little landing, nice little landing there for us. Uh, But this morning, we're going to study the prayer as it appears In the ESV translation, we're going to walk through the six major petitions that form kind of the bones of the prayer. But before we do that, I want to zoom out and just make some sort of preliminary observations about the prayer as a whole. First thing I think is important for us to see is this. The Lord's Prayer is a model, not a mantra. That's so important for us to understand. Look carefully at at the introduction that Jesus gives. He says, pray then like this. Do you see that? Meaning that that in this teaching, Jesus is teaching us how to pray, not what to pray. That's very significant. Uh, Notice as well that this prayer is given in contrast to the way that pagans pray. So look again at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. So Jesus intends for this simple model of prayer to be an antidote or a defense, as it were, against hypocrisy on the one hand, which is the way the Jewish leaders were praying, and he talked about that in the the verses prior, and to paganism on the other. So hypocrisy is about performance, right? Praying in showy ways, standing prominently, you know, so that everyone can hear you. Don't pray on the street corners like the hypocrites, Jesus says. They're, they're not really praying to God, they're praying to you. Don't, don't be like that. And don't be like the pagans either. Do you remember uh, we get a little picture of pagan prayer in the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel? Right? Elijah is like, let's have a little thing. right? You, you, put some, you put an ox on the fire, I'll put an ox on the fire. You pray to your gods, I'll pray to my God, and then we'll see uh, which religion should be the religion of Israel. And the pagans are all dancing around and they're like, whoa, Baal, you know, pay attention to us. And Baal doesn't do anything. So then they start slashing themselves with swords because they figure if we get all bloody and noisy, uh, then for sure he'll show up, right? And Elijah starts making fun of them. He's like, wow, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Pray a little louder, right? I can't hear you. Maybe he's having a snoozeroo, right? Pray a little. He said, snoozeroo. He said, pray a little louder. Pray a little louder. That's paganism trying to get the, it's, it's, paganism is about manipulation. So if hypocrisy, if the concern with hypocrisy is performanceism, the concern with paganism is manipulation. The idea that we can twist God's arm, if you just get a little louder, if you just say it again, if you just throw in one more Father God, right, then, then for sure, and as an antidote, as a protection against all of that, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. So, obviously, the goal is not for us to just rattle this off as a sort of mantra. The goal is for us to use it as a model and a guide. Nobody seemed to understand this better than Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther had a barber uh, who, who cut his hair, and the barber asked him one time for some guidance on how to pray. Luther, of course, was famous as a man of prayer, and so the barber asked Luther if he would share some of his wisdom. It's a fabulous letter. Luther wrote back, uh, and in the letter he advocated for, for using the Lord's Prayer as a model and a guide, but then he went on to say, listen to this, he said, you should also know that I do not want you to recite all words in your prayer. Make sure your prayer isn't just you rattling off some words you've got memorized. That would make it nothing but idle, chatter, and prattle, read word for word out of a book, as were the rosaries by the laity and the prayers of the priests and monks. Rather, do I want your heart to be stirred and guided concerning the thoughts which ought to be comprehended in the Lord's Prayer. These thoughts may be expressed if your heart is rightly warmed and inclined toward prayer in many different ways and with more words or fewer. You seeing that? So Luther's advice actually was that you memorize the Lord's Prayer. He actually recommended to all his people that they say the Lord's Prayer three times a day, in the morning, in the evening, and at table. So he wanted you to memorize the Lord's Prayer, not just so that you could rattle it it off as a mantra, but so that you could be guided and stirred by the Lord's Prayer in terms of its priorities and petitions. That was the goal And I can honestly tell you that nothing has been more transformative for me as an individual in terms of my own prayer life than recognizing this principle. When I first read that from Luther about 12 years ago, I I adopted that as my general practice. So I began using the, the priorities, the patterns of the Lord's Prayer as a guide for my own prayer life. So in the morning, I would begin my prayers. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then I would pause and I would, I would pray, stirred and guided by that phrase, I would pray to God as my Father. Father, thank you so much that, that you are my Father, that I can know you in, a, in an intimate and familial way. And yet, Father, thank you that you're Father in heaven, because you see the whole board. And I, Lord, I only see what's in front of my face. Father, I pray today that you would be my guide, my rock, my foundation, my center, my highest source of authority. Lord, be that for me, be that for my family, be that for my church, be that for this nation. You see? The, the goal is not to just rattle off this prayer. The goal is to be stirred, guided, and directed by this prayer. So important for us to understand The Lord's Prayer is a model, not a mantra. Second thing we should be careful to take note of is that the Lord's Prayer is directed to our Father in heaven. Every word of that address is important. First of all, Jesus is encouraging us to think corporately or collectively when we pray. He tells us to pray to our Father, not my Father. Just that little change is very significant. D.A. Carson says here, there's, there's no doubt a, a place for praying as an individual to God, but the general pattern of our praying must be broader than that. Therefore, when I, as one follower of Christ among many, address our Father, my concern is to embrace our daily bread, our sins, our temptations, and not just mine. You ever notice that? This is really hard for us in, in the Western world. Um, I think I referenced a book a couple weeks ago. I'm, I'm still making my way through it. I tend to read a, a couple books at a time. but uh, By Joseph Heinrich, called The Weirdest People in the World. Um, he's not talking about you specifically. I mean, you, you, what, what you think that applies to. Uh, he's actually just talking. He's, he's not a Christian, by the way. Though, um, When he talks about the weirdest people in the world, he, he's the chair of evolutionary biology at Harvard University. He's actually trying to understand why Western people are the way they are. Because he says, actually, Western people are different than most of the people on the planet today and are very different than most of the people who've ever lived a- a- across human history. But one of the differences he's, he's pointed out is that Western people are wildly individualistic. So, for example, you know, he, he'll, he'll ask questions. He'll ask questions of a group of people from Samoa and then a bunch of American university students. And the, the question will be, um, it's, it's a question where you're supposed to fill in the blank. Who am I or I am fill in the blank? And he says it's very interesting. Only Westerners answer that question with personal attributes or ambitions. So who am I? I am a fabulous student or I am a dog lover or I am kind. Everywhere else in the world, the first answer they put in there is a relationship. I am the son of Bob. It's probably not Bob. Son of whoever. I am sister to. I am brother to. I am a member of this tribe. I am a citizen of this region. Everyone else in the world defaults to thinking in, in, in corporate terms. But the more Western you are, the more likely you are to think exclusively in terms of individual terms. I am me. How much time you got? Because I got some stuff to say about me. And it's interesting because our prayer lives reflect that. So we've been talking about using the the whole Sermon on the Mount as a bit of a standard, as a bit of a test, you know, apply it to yourself, make whatever changes are necessary. Here's Here's a quick question. When you pray, how many personal pronouns are in your prayer? Lord, I, this, me, that, my, I need, my, my, How many plurals are there? Our, we. What's the percentage of requests that are for you versus requests that are for us? It's interesting that we're just so individualistic in the West. I think we hear this and we gloss it over. We have like a Western translation mode. So Jesus says to pray to our Father and we're like, I will absolutely do that, Jesus, thank you. My Father... And we just immediately go from our to my. So notice that. It's our Father. But notice that it's our Father. right? And not just our Father, but our Father who art in heaven. Those words matter too. I'm sure you've heard before, uh, or maybe you haven't, but maybe you're hearing it for the first time. I would imagine many of us have heard before that it was actually not very common for the Jews in Jesus' day to address God in familial or intimate terms. Uh, The Jews in Jesus' day, it was much more common for them to address God in terms of his exalted nature. So they like to pray to God Almighty or the Lord of hosts or God Most High. And of course, all of that is true of God. But here, Jesus is inviting us into the same familial intimacy that characterized his own prayer life. He's saying, basically, God is, is my father. And if you are my disciple, if you are my brother or sister, then you can address him that way as well. Jesus said this sort of thing all the time. In John 16, he said to the disciples, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Isn't that incredible? According to Jesus, if you love Jesus, then the Father loves you and invites you to address him in familial terms. So there is intimacy here, but there is also reverence here. He is our Father in heaven, so he is still God most high. Intimacy and reverence should go together. Sometimes, I think in the evangelical world, we assume that intimacy means flippancy. Yo, what's up, pops? Just a quick word about my needs. Mm, that's probably not appropriate. Um, intimacy and reverence can and and should go together. All right, lastly, in terms of just preliminary observations, things we're noticing as we kind of zoom out, look at the prayer as a whole, I think it's important for us to notice that the Lord's Prayer suggests a certain hierarchy of concerns. Uh, We've mentioned a few times that there are six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you've noticed that the first three are directed to God's glory and the last three are directed to our needs That is by no means an accident. John Calvin says here, as the law of God, so he's speaking about the Ten Commandments here, as the law of God is divided into two tables of which the former contains the duties of piety and the latter the duties of charity, so in prayer, Christ enjoins us to consider and seek the glory of God and at the same time permits us to consult our own interests. Let us therefore know that we shall be in a state of mind for praying in a right manner, if we not only are in earnest about ourselves and our own advantage, here's the key line, but assign the first place to the glory of God. Isn't that good? good, wise balance? Calvin says, it, you know, it, hey, it's fine to, to go into prayer with a sense of your own advantage, meaning the things that you need. That's okay. But give first place, first priority to the things relating to the glory of God. So it's a, it's a both-and approach, but with a sense of priority and order that is so important. All right, with those preliminary observations made, let's dig in now to the structure and architecture of the Lord's Prayer. have said a few times now the Lord's Prayer is built around six petitions. I suppose that's a bit of a fancy word. Petition means request. Okay, so six main requests, six main petitions. Here they are. First one, of course, is hallowed be your name. And just for this exercise, I'll, I'll use the, the petitions as they're translated in the ESV. We would, we would say here in Canada, Hallowed be thy name, right from our, our school background, but we're just going to go through it in the ESV here. Hallowed be your name. Of all the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, I'm guessing that this is the one that actually, at first glance, doesn't, doesn't make a great deal of, of sense to us. We know, give us this day our daily bread. We can figure that one out. But Hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? Hollywood uh, is not a word that you use probably in any other context, is it? You know, uh, I wonder if, if I offered you a, a dollar to come up with another context in which to use the word Hollywood, right? That would be tricky, tricky to do. Um, in Greek, it is a form of the word holy. It's a passive imperative. So meaning we're praying that something would be done with respect to God. But what in the world could that mean? We're certainly not praying that God would become more holy. God is infinitely holy, so that's not it. We're not praying that God's name would be more holy. Now, in Bible land, and Bible culture, to speak of a person's name is to speak of their nature, their attributes, and their activity. So we're not saying, like, God, if you would just clean up your act, right? Like, no, 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 we're definitely not saying that. So what in the world are we praying for? Leon Morris is really helpful here. He says, this prayer is not so much a petition that God will do some great act that will show everyone who and what he is, as a prayer that he will bring people to a proper attitude toward him. It expresses an aspiration that he who is holy will be seen to be holy and treated throughout his creation as holy. So when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be, Thy name. We're we're asking for God to so work in the world that more and and more people come into a right relationship with Him. We're asking for for many solar systems to come come back into proper balance, orbit, and alignment. So that's a little metaphor there. Maybe that's useful to you. To be holy uh, means two things in terms of the etymology of the word. Like, what is that word holy? Because remember, Hallowed is a form of holy. Uh, If you look up holy in a Bible dictionary, it'll tell you there's two two basic meanings. It means otherness or separateness to to be distinct. God is is not us. He's not just a very smart, exalted human being. There is a huge gap, a total gap, an infinite gap between who God is and who we are. So there's the distinction, the other, the separateness piece, but then there's also the gravity piece, the, the weightiness of God, the bigness of God. And so when we pray, hallowed be thy name, what we're really praying, again, is for for individual universes to come back into proper alignment. We're we're saying, God... A lot of people in this world, myself included, have our, have our universe in, in wrong order. We've got Saturn out here in the center and the sun over here, and everything's in, in chaos. That's what an idol is. An idol is a good thing that we treat like a God thing. So it's when we take a planet that's supposed to be out in its orbit, and we put it in the center. The, the most common idol in North America, and certainly in the North American church, is the idol of family. When we treat our wives as though they are God, when we treat our husbands as though they are God, meaning their word. By the way, do you want to know a quick little expression of idolatry? You're a secret idolater if you've ever said the phrase, happy wife, happy life. (laughs) Because what you're saying is, is the key to happiness in life is making sure my wife's not angry at me. You're treating her like God. Because actually, my friend, the secret to a happy life is making sure God's not angry at you. Making sure that you're in right relationship with God. And you know what? Maybe once, twice, three times over the course of a marriage, you've got to do something that will make your wife angry, but that will please the Lord. You ready to do that? Right? No? I don't know. Appreciate the honesty. <laughs> Here's a prayer for you. Hallowed be your name. That's what you're praying. You're praying, Lord, help me put my own universe back in order. And, oh, Lord, so work in the world that the universe of all my loved ones, the universe of everyone in my church, the universe of everyone in this world, Lord, would be back in its its proper order. That's what it means to pray, hallowed be thy name. All right, let's do the second one. What does it mean to pray, your kingdom come? The kingdom of God refers, of course, to the domain of God, the rule of God. The Bible tends to speak of that in three different ways. Uh, First of all, there's the universal sense. God rules right now over all things. The Bible says, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So the whole world is God's domain. He's sovereign over it all. He's sovereign over the stuff, the mountains, the movements, the physics of it all, and over the people as well. That's the universal sense. Probably not praying about that because you can't increase that or decrease that. God is sovereign over it all, all the time. Yet there is also a sense in which the kingdom of God grows insofar as it is recognized and submitted to in human hearts. So Jesus spoke about that. He said the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. You know what they say? Oh, look, there it is. Or look, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So there Jesus is talking about the kingdom coming or increasing or growing in the sense that it is recognized and submitted to within human heart so that's the personal sense and then lastly we have the consummated sense the apostle paul talks about that in 1st corinthians 15 24 to 26 he says then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of god or delivers the kingdom to god the father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death So that is the kingdom of God in its final consummated sense. When every enemy has been destroyed, when all sin and all causes of sin have been rooted out and thrown into the eternal fire, then shall the righteous shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father forever. Thanks be to God. So we've got three senses, the universal, the personal, and the consummated. The question then, of course, is what sense are we praying about in the Lord's Prayer? Well, obviously, as I said, we're not praying about the first sense. The the universal sovereignty of God can either increase nor decrease. It is what it is. That leaves us the last two. And most theologians and commentators believe that, that both are in view when we pray this part of the prayer, but it is the second sense that probably is the one that is primary, the sense of God reigning in human hearts. So John Calvin, for example, says here, the substance of this prayer is that God would enlighten the world by the light of his word, would form the hearts of men by the influence of his spirit to obey his justice, and would restore to order by the gracious exercise of his power all the disorder that exists in the world. So, when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying for knees to bow, for tongues to confess, we're praying for Ears to be unstopped, for eyes to be opened so that people could see and delight in the gracious rule of God. Lord, make it so. Thy kingdom come. The third petition is closely related to that. In the third petition, Jesus tells us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible tends to talk about the will of God also in three different ways. There is first the decretive will of God, there is the preceptive will of God, and there is the dispositional will of God. Uh, The decretive, you can hear the word decree inside that, the decretive will of God refers to all of God's eternal decrees, which cannot be resisted. So we're probably not praying about that here. The preceptive, you can hear the word precept, which is another word for command in the Bible. The preceptive will of God refers to the things that God commands us to do. So it is God's will for us to honor our parents, right? That's one of the 10 commandments. Honor your father and your mother. So that's God's will, but we can resist that, can't we? Many people in the world don't honor their parents. So that's God's will, but there's a sense in which that will can be resisted. And then there's the dispositional will of God. That refers to things that God finds pleasing. 2 Peter 3, 9, for example, says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it doesn't please God when we reject his offer of salvation. But, but do people reject his offer of salvation? yes. And so the, the dispositional will of God can, can be resisted as well. We can, we can do things that are pleasing to God, or we can do things that are displeasing to God. Chances are you, you, you may have done some of those things already this week. And it's only 1049 on the first day, right? So we can do things that are pleasing to God, we can do things that are displeasing. So it is in these last two senses, the preceptive and the dispositional will of God, that we're praying when we say, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. When we pray that, we are asking God to help us do what we should do. God, help me keep the fifth commandment. God, help me keep the sixth commandment because there's somebody in my neighborhood I'd like to hit with a tire iron. That was hypothetical, by the way. Right, you can go through, God, help me keep the seventh. You're praying, thy will be done. I wanna do what you command me to do. And I want to do that which is pleasing to you. You remember in 1 John 3 the Apostle John said that we have what we ask from God. We have power in prayer because we do the things that please him. So there's, yes, there's, there's obeying the commandments, but there's, there's also this kind of other layer of doing that which pleases to God. And we're asking for help with that. We're asking for God's help to do God's will. As St. Augustine prayed famously, O Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. That's exactly what we're praying for in the third petition of the Lord's Prayer. The fourth petition is, of course, give us this day our daily bread. That's where we transition from prayers relating to God's glory to prayers relating to human need. Martin Luther, by the way, if you're wondering, why why so many quotes from Luther and Calvin? I don't know if you know this, but in, in the Reformation there was a real emphasis on uh, teaching churches and children three things that they thought would, in essence, uh, rescue the church from the superstitions and distractions of Roman Catholicism. The three things were the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed. That was the sum and substance. Like if you were to ask, what was, what was the Reformers' um, discipleship program? That was it. You should read Luther's Catechism. By and large, they would say, you learn Christianity – By learning those three things. So anyway, long story short, they all wrote books on this stuff. They all wrote treatises and tracts. So it's just, it's absolute gold. Uh, You know, I'll be honest with you, preparing for this sermon was massively spiritually edifying because it it takes you into these these beautiful, rich places. Anyway, with respect to daily bread, nobody says it better than Luther here. Let's know what he says. He says, therefore we pray in the first place that he may give us our daily bread. That is, so he understands it as a metaphor, that is everything that is needful for the preservation of this life. Then he goes on a list. Food, a healthy body, good weather, house, home, wife, child, good government, peace, and that he may preserve us from all manner of calamity, sickness, pestilence, dear times. That means um, poverty, war, insurrection, etc. So if you're using this prayer as a model, this is where you pray for the things that you need. Emphasis on the word need. You're praying for daily bread, which is a pretty obvious metaphor for the necessities of life. This is not an invitation to ask God for a Porsche or for a beautiful cottage by the lake. right? This is about need. This is about food, health, rain, marriage, children, peace and security, the things we need to survive and thrive as human beings. And remember, you're praying in a communal spirit. You're you're praying for all of us. You're praying for your whole church family to have these things. You're saying, Lord, give us the money to buy groceries and gas. By the way, I hope you're praying that prayer right now. This used to be a metaphor. Now it's called Thursday, right? I hope you're praying that. And I hope you're praying us there, right? Because we all right now need help buying groceries and gas. So I hope you're praying that. This is, this is where you, you pray for the health of your kids and for my kids and, and for all our kids. This is where you pray for the women in the church who are having a hard time conceiving children. This is where you pray for the people in our church who have lost their jobs. This is where you pray for the people in our church who have been diagnosed with cancer. That's what it means to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. The fifth petition is just as needful. I think we probably say even more needful. In the fifth petition, we're taught to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Of course, in the version we learned in school, we said trespasses. It's, it's fine, they're both good, but actually debts does get us pretty... Pretty close to the heart of how the Bible deals with sin. One of the first things we learn as Bible readers is that sin separates us from God, and apart from God, we are falling apart. Apart from God. Uh, we were meant to live in God. We were meant for an, an intimacy that was lost in the fall. And so apart from God, we're like fish out of water, or plants pulled, pulled up from the pot, or planets out of their natural orbit. Choose whatever metaphor you like. Human beings apart from God are disintegrating, diminishing, and dying. So sin is a very serious problem. We need to get rid of it so that we can be reconciled and return to God. And that's what Jesus came to do. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, 13 to 14 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. So pause there. You can see how the, the apostles could move back and forth from debt and trespasses. The ideas are overlapping. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Isn't that a wonderful verse? So when you when you pray, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our our debts, whatever words you use, when you pray that, you are asking for your sin debt to be transferred to the account of Jesus on the cross. The message of the gospel is that your sins can be paid for there in the body of Jesus on the cross, or they can pay, be paid for in, in your body in eternity. That's the deal. But if, if he forgives your sins then he expects you to forgive those who've sinned against you. That sentiment, that expectation is actually woven into the very words of of this prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then in case you skipped over that, like we skipped over the hour part at the beginning, if you just glossed over that, then at the end, he's like, because if you don't forgive other people, let me just go back to that. If you don't forgive other people, your sins won't be forgiven either. Interestingly, this is the only petition in the Lord's, prayer to get a, a sort of sentence of explanation, which I would, I would imagine suggests that it's the one we're most likely to overlook. So Jesus connecting them here weaving them together. Now remember, Jesus has just said, don't pray like the Gentiles, you know? Don't pray like a pagan. They think that they're going to get what they want out of God just by heaping up words. And then he gives this, this teaching. So put that together. He's saying, do you think you can just like snow God with a pile of words? Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, Lord. And do you think if you just keep saying that? Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Father, have mercy. Do you think if you just keep saying that, then he'll forgive you? You know what he's going to look at? He's going to look at whether you forgive other people. So less talk, more do. Isn't isn't that interesting? I mean, when you zoom out and see the Lord's prayer, Could that be any clearer? No, he's not saying, like, I'm not going to forgive you until you forgive other people. Thankfully, we've got a whole parable illustrating this. Jesus tells the story, remember, the unforgiving servant. He's forgiven a great debt that he could never repay. But the proof that he did not really understand what the master had done for him was shown in the fact that he immediately went out and began to beat up somebody who owed him a few dollars. And, and so how we act actually tells the truth about how we were praying. That's the point. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't just throw words at God. If you're not praying for all of this, if you're not praying, Lord, forgive my sins and help me to forgive others. If you're not praying all of that, don't pray for any of it, is what Jesus is saying. So if you want forgiveness, then you're, you, you also, alongside of that, have to ask for grace to forgive those who've sinned against you. The sixth and final petition then is this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's a tricky one in, in English. In Greek, the word for test is the same Greek word as the word for temptation. So as a translator, you're always having to make a decision. Is this a test or a temptation? Now, of course, all temptations are tests, but not all tests are temptations. If that boggles your mind, remember if you took Logic and rhetoric at any point in school, they told you, you know, all cats are animals, but not all animals are cats, right? It's important to keep your categories straight. So all temptations are tests, but not all tests are temptations, right? Because, you know, there are other tests. Sickness is a test of faith, isn't it? Wealth is a test of faith. Failure is a test of faith. Loss is a test of faith. Loneliness is a test of faith. So I think we're, we're talking in a, in a comprehensive sense here. The, the, the sense of the prayer, when we pray that, Lord, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, the sense is that we're, we're asking God not to overwhelm us in terms of the tests, which may include temptations, may include sickness, may include loneliness. Lord, don't overwhelm us with the tests that you ordain for us. Be mindful of our frailty and weakness. Charles Spurgeon says here, in the course of providence, the Lord tests our graces and the sincerity of our profession, meaning our profession of faith. Remember, you don't just think you can overwhelm God with your words. So the Lord tests our graces and the sincerity of our profession. And for this purpose, he does lead us into temptation. We entreat him, we ask him, not to to try, not to test us too severely. I pray this all the time. Lord, I know I need to grow. I, I know I need to have my faith tested and strengthened, but but I don't ever want to do anything that would bring shame upon the name of Jesus. So God, please be mindful of my weakness. Be mindful of my limitations. Remember that I am Dust with every temptation, provide a way of escape, and by your Spirit, speed my feet toward that way of escape. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That's a good prayer for pastors and for everybody. Well, they say that preaching is the fine art of reading the text, explaining the text, and applying the text. And I imagine that we would all agree in this room that the correct application for this text that we've been reading and explaining for the last 35 minutes or so. is pretty obvious. This is a passage about how to pray. And so let's do that. Why don't we stand together and uh, we'll pray as the Lord taught us to do. We'll recite the Lord's Prayer because that'll help us remember it and hopefully be stirred by its priorities and petitions. And then we're going to have a number of folks uh, come, so they'll come up while we're praying. So that's another good reason to close your eyes. Uh, And they're going to do our pastoral prayer today, our time of corporate prayer. They're going to do that this morning. And I've asked six different people to pray so that you can better differentiate how our prayer is being formed this morning and guided and stirred by these six separate categories. So let's, let's do that. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come.